Well, if you guys have been around the church block for any length of time, you know that one of the things that pastors are really prone to do is speak in hyperbole. Hyperbole is simply when you overstate something for the sake of effect. And I find that pastors especially do that all the time. You know, that we're talking about trends in America or what have you. They'll, they'll make it sound like, you know, things are going to hell in a handbasket and they'll start overstating things strongly or what have you. And then on the other extreme, when things are going well, pastors talk about it's like the second coming is right around the corner. I mean, pastors are really prone to stating things, overstating things for the sake of effect. And the reason I tell you that is because though I have been known to overstate things as well at times for the sake of effect. What I'm about to say to you this morning, I don't think falls under hyperbole. What I'm about to say to you, I believe, is literally true and an apt description of our culture and age. So look up here on the screen. Here's my opening comment, and that is this. The number one epidemic disease of the soul in 21st century American living is discontentment. I, I truly believe that. That if you were to try to pull together a myriad of the top psychologists or sociologists, culture watchers from all different vantage points, and give them a listing of all the things that Americans struggle with, especially Americans when we look inward at what's going on in our souls, I think that the number one thing they would say is that we are an awfully discontented bunch. I mean, on all levels, we're discontented. In our jobs, in our relationships, in our emotions, in our thoughts, whether it has to do with work, family, society, politics, economics. I mean, you name it. And generally speaking, we as Americans aren't very satisfied. And one of the reasons I know this is true is because it's even infiltrated the church. I mean, the church is a protected place, protected as we celebrated today for our freedoms, protected in many, many ways, church versus state, all of that stuff. And yet, I got to tell you, I deal every week with profound discontentment that people have, and they drag that even to the church. Why aren't you doing this for me? Why aren't you doing that for me? Why are things not this way? I mean, we live in a consumer-oriented culture, and it gives away our discontentment on all levels. We're a discontented bunch. And lest you think that this is just something benign, because I've heard people try to say that over the years, they basically said, well, Jamie, okay, so we're discontented, big whip. I mean, we got lots of things we struggle with. That might be at the top of the list, but what's the big deal? What you need to know is that discontentment is an epidemic soul disease because it steals peace, it blocks the experienced presence of God, and it can even lead to all kinds of sin in the end. I'm not sure most people realize that. That the reason that discontentment is such a big deal is because it steals your peace, it blocks the experienced presence of God, and it leads to sin. I mean, discontented people, I don't know if you noticed, don't have a lot of peace. They're always looking for more, inwardly anxious, fretting and worrying. And when those things are taking up most of the space in your soul, there isn't a lot of room for peace. And I don't know if you notice as well, but discontented people don't seem to experience the presence of God all that often. And now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the presence of God is not with us. It is. Jesus said to his church that he will be with us always, even to the very ends of the age. So we know that the presence of God is with us. But the reality is, is that many people don't experience that presence. They ask me all the time, where is God in this situation? Where is God in that situation? 
And discontentment has the ability to block people from experiencing his presence, which he has promised us. And I don't know if you found as well, but discontented people are really prone to making catastrophically unwise and even stupid decisions, like the kind that alter the course of our lives. And I see it as a pastor happen every day. Discontent in your marriage? Get out. Don't like my job? Quit. Church ticks me off? I'm going to go find another one. Kids let you down? Shame and alienate them. Want more things? Go into debt and buy them. I mean, all kinds of sin, please see, are the result of a discontented spirit, a spirit that never quite finds that sweet spot or much satisfaction this side of heaven. Truly, folks, discontentment is not something we want to treat lightly, and it is certainly not something that you and I want to dismiss or ignore. And so turning the corner to a much more positive focus this morning and our time remaining, I want to explore simply two things. I want us to explore what contentment is, because I'm not sure we all really understand what contentment is. And then I want us to explore how we can find contentment. Can we do that? If it's that important of a deal, as we fight discontentment, let's positively explore what it is and then how we can find it. And this is precisely the note that the book of Philippians, a book we've been studying this spring, and into the summer here at our church ends on. And before I even give you the first point, let me just read for you a portion of where we left off last week. I want to read for you Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. So if you brought a Bible, open up to there. And as I read this first portion from the latter half of the ending of the book of Philippians, I want you to ask yourself as I'm reading it, what would be my definition of contentment if I had to give one? What would be a good working definition of contentment based upon what we're about ready to read or what we're going to read right now? So Philippians 4, verses 10 through 12. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul the Apostle is speaking here, and don't miss, he says something very powerful. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. And then, just so we're clear, he tells us what some of those circumstances are. Humble means versus prosperity, being filled or going hungry, having abundance or being in need. I am content, he says. And the number one question you and I should be asking if we were kind of having a cup of coffee with Paul the Apostle would be, well, how are you defining contentment? I mean, I think I'm with you, Paul, and I think you might even have one up on me because you obviously have a level of contentment here that I might salivate after. But let's begin real simple. How might you define contentment? And here is what I think Paul the Apostle is saying about contentment in principle form. I'm going to put it in a principle here, and it's point one in your outline, and it's simply this, that he's telling us that contentment is a level of satisfaction that transcends temporal circumstances. I think that is a good and clear working definition of contentment. It's a level of satisfaction that transcends temporal circumstances. 
And so notice with me that generally speaking, there are two parts to that definition that make all the difference, that fill in the gaps. First, we're saying that contentment is a level of satisfaction. Not to be confused with total satisfaction, as we're going to see in a minute. But it's at the very least attaining a certain level where that inward anxiousness that most of us will admit when we're honest with ourselves doesn't rule the day anymore in your soul. But where you're generally okay as who you are as a redeemed son or daughter of God and with the course of your spiritual and relational life under him. It's a level that you reach of satisfaction. And then by its very nature, notice with me the second key part of defining contentment. And that is, and this is so important, it transcends temporal circumstances. It transcends temporal circumstances. That word temporal simply means time-bound. It's all the circumstances that you're going through right now mired here in time. And so it's referring to your healthy or not so healthy marriage, your full or your empty pocketbook, your rebellious or your obedient children, your fulfilling or your not fulfilling job. You get the picture. How you would describe your life right now, your sad or your happy emotions, whatever they might be for you today, those are your temporal, time-bound, here-and-now circumstances. And what Paul is saying is that contentment is something that transcends those. It rises above those. It finds a source that goes beyond those things and gives you a satisfaction, a certain satisfaction in life. And folks, I believe that this is precisely what Paul is trying to tell us here. You see, when he says there in verse 11, give me a click here, thanks, that I have learned to be content, that word content there in the original language that the New Testament was written in, the Greek language, literally means sufficient. It's a powerful word. It carries with it a sense of enough, having enough inside of you where things matter most that you're okay. So it kind of pictures a dude who's got all these crazy things going on around him, maybe some crazy good things, maybe some crazy bad things, and yet there's something inside of him or her that has been filled up enough that he or she is okay, that he or she has a, a sense of fullness and satisfaction in life. And then to prove this point even further, Paul then points to three very real-life conditions that bombard you and I every day, and he shares how none of these things ultimately actually determine or decide the level of satisfaction that he has this side of heaven. It's very interesting. Now look at verse 12 there. He says, I've experienced being brought low and being one who has abounded. Brought low versus abounding. Two very general terms in the original Greek language that the Bible is written to, referring to just generally speaking life from your job to your relationships to your economy around you to your emotional life. Paul is saying that in every area of life, whether you had a lot or a little, he had found a level of satisfaction that transcends this. And then, just so these understood, he gets even more specific and detailed when he says there in verse 12, I've also been facing plenty or been hungry. Been facing plenty or been hungry. And these terms obviously are terms dealing with food, right? And that's a powerful illustration he's giving here because food is a really important aspect of life. We all need it. 
Without it, we're going to die. And food is also many times an indicator of the disposition of one's emotional state and soul. And what I mean by that is that when people don't get food, especially if you notice when men don't get food, things change. I mean, you can just change, you can change a man's life by feeding him. I have found that over the years. Kim and I fought a lot in the first year of our marriage. We celebrated 23 years a couple of weeks ago. And I'm telling you, we haven't fought for 22 years because she knows that when I start to cop an attitude, feed me. And everything changes. I mean, I can be in a bad mood. It's a Friday night. I'm not looking forward to the weekend. And Kim will say, how about Cheesecake Factory? I go, I'm in. I'm like, wow, I feel better just thinking about a Santa Fe salad. I mean, it's just amazing. And that's the way life works, is that many of us are focused on food, and we, we love food. Can you own that with me? I mean, food is a great indicator of the contentment of our life. And yet that's Paul's point. He is saying that he has found a way, now don't miss this, to be soul-satisfied even when his bodily hunger was not satisfied. That's why I argue that contentment transcends our temporal circumstances, because Paul the Apostle got just as hungry as you do. And yet he was saying, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm full, it doesn't really matter. I've learned some secrets to being content. We'll get to that in just a minute. But then in hitting us where it really hurts, he refers to a third set of realities about our lives when he says there, abundance or need. Whether in abundance or need. Most Bible experts see this as referring to money. That word abundance there means to superabound, to have enough and then some. And that, that word need there is the opposite word. It means to be destitute, like the person who loses at the end of the Monopoly game and has nothing left, no houses, no money, no property. Uh, Paul is saying that his contentment has transcended both of these extremes. And so whether he had a lot or had a little, it didn't matter. He was content. Are you starting to see here? Paul is just painting a picture here of contentment that is a level of satisfaction that you and I can truly attain in our lives and one that is so powerful, so immune to the things of this world that it rises above them. And I would submit to you, that's a vastly different kind of contentment than the one our world offers us. Our world tells us that you're going to find contentment in the things around you, right? Right? Our world tells us you're going to find contentment in that next purchase. You're going to find contentment in that next relationship. You're going to find contentment in your 401k. You're going to find contentment in your hobbies. That's what our world screams to us. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says as good as all those things might be, and as fine as they are because they are blessings from God, they are not ultimately going to deliver contentment. In fact, they're going to let you down. You're going to get there, as we're going to see in a minute, and you're going to say, what? This is it? This is it? I mean, I worked all my life for these things. I now live in Scottsdale. I got a nice house. I can take nice vacations. I get to relax, and I'm still unfulfilled. What gives? And that's exactly Paul's point. The contentment that we've been striving for is not a contentment that's bound in temporal circumstances. It's one in which you're going to rise above them. And as we're going to see in just a second here, it's going to come from another source. And so notice with me rather quickly, I'm going to whip through these things, that Philippians then goes on to tell us three things contentment isn't, just so that we're really clear. First, it tells us that it's not, and we've been hinting to this, a total satisfaction with spiritual and relational life. It's not a total satisfaction. 
In other words, contentment, as I keep saying, is a level of satisfaction where temporal circumstances no longer grip you by the neck and have sway over your soul. But don't confuse that with a total satisfaction. That's going to wait until heaven. Look what Paul says in the previous chapter in Philippians 3, verse 13, in talking about his satisfaction in Christ. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, i.e. satisfaction, total satisfaction in Christ, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I love it. This is what Pastor Bill Hybels from Chicago calls a holy, H-O-L-Y, a holy discontent. The fact that there's times where God allows us to have a discontentment in this fallen world of ours, in this fallen body, this fallen mind, a discontentment so that we would be driven to him. It's David's experience in the Psalms where he says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you. What's going on there? It's a holy discontent. It's God allowing a good kind of discontentment to come into your life to keep you motivated and spurred on towards satisfaction in him. That's going to be part of the game in a fallen world this side of heaven. And so the best that the Bible offers is a level of satisfaction that we're going to talk about here in just a second about how to get that in which the edge is taken off of all that anxiousness and worry and fear and the things that bring discontentment into our lives. That's what Paul has talked about that he has here. That's his secret. But then before that, notice me secondly that contentment is not lack of need or want. It's not a lack of need or want. And the only reason we know this is because Paul the Apostle goes on later in the same chapter to talk about the fact that he has needs. In fact, he says that when you all, give me a click here, that when you all sent uh, some people to me, some gifts that you sent me, he, he said they met my needs. So why would Paul admit that if he had needs, if he really didn't have needs? And so, so don't miss this. Paul is saying it's okay to have needs, it's okay to have wants, it's okay to have desires, but that contentment can come along, rise above that, but that doesn't mean that you still don't have needs. Do you see that? So we're not saying that contentment is somehow the absence of wants or needs. No, you're still going to have those. It just rises above it. It transcends it. And then thirdly, notice to me that contentment is not laziness, inactivity, or what we might call lethargy. I mean, I have to say this because this is the picture that some people have of contentment. They see contented people as lazy, sitting back, relaxing, drinking a pina colada, watching the ships come in and then go out again. Folks, that's not contentment. That contentment is a state of mind and heart, of soul, in which, get this, while you do all the things that you're doing, while you're being active and doing what you're doing, you're okay. You have a level of satisfaction in which you say, it's cool, I'm okay. I know who I am in Christ, I am secure, and even though I'm very active, I'm okay. And the reason that this is important to point out is because, and some of you are going to love this, is that this gives hope to every type A personality in this worship center. Amen? I mean, if somebody told me that in order for me to be content, I'd have to get rid of my type A, I'd be depressed. I'd be the opposite of content. Because as you guys know, you guys got a type A pastor. I was type A from the moment I was born. Asked my mom. I was type A as a kid. I was type A in high school. By the way, I hadn't met Christ yet. Then I met Christ. And then Christ came and said, I forgive you of your sin. I love you. I want to empower you by your spirit. But what happens when the Holy Spirit inhabits a type A personality? 
All of a sudden now you got a new cause. All of a sudden now you're on fire, and it's like double fire. So I'm telling you, when I became a Christian, my friends were like, oh, no. If we thought he was wacko and overzealous before, look out. And they were right. I mean, the reality is, is that now one of the things you guys love about me as your pastor is that I love to work. I love to build a kingdom. I love to be with you guys. I love to preach. I love to do it all. So I got a type A personality. But guess what? And I'm not bragging here. Paul's going to say, though, it is possible to get to this place because this is a good thing. I'm pretty content. I'm pretty content. And the reason I know that is because even on my worst days, when I'm driving home from this place, I ask myself, is there anything else, Jamie, you'd rather have in your life right now? I mean, anything else you're longing for? Anything else that you want to just skip town and do? And honestly, I say, no. No, I'm, I'm so good. I'm so good in my spirit right now. And, and I was good when I had a little church in Michigan, and I'm good with a large church in Scottsdale. I was good when I was in seminary planning for all of this, and, and I'm good now that I'm halfway through it. I, I'm good when Kim and I are having a rough time, though I'm not happy about that, and, and, and I'm good when we're flying high. I, I'm good when my kids are not turning out like I thought they would, and that happens to all of us. And no more details on that. And I'm good when they're doing really well. <laughs> my kids, by the way, told me about, I don't know, probably two years ago, they said, Dad, we're now at the age where you must stop using us as sermon illustrations. <laughs> Which is really a bummer for you guys because my last church had more Hannah, Abby, and Paul stories than they could shake a fist at. And they knew them inside and out. But when my kids became teenagers, they had to set a rule and say, Dad, no more stories about us. It's our lives. We will become Buddhists if you start doing that. So I don't want my kids to become Buddhists, so there were no more stories about them. But you get the picture. The reality is, is that there are times where your kids are doing great. There's times they're not. And, and, and I'm okay. I'm okay. H how about you? That's what we're taking the temperature of here today. Are you starting to see? We're talking about something that's completely different and other than all the circumstances and situations that life throws our way. We're talking about something that happens inside a person that makes it so that the outside stuff doesn't seem to have all that much influence and sway. And so the only question we've got to answer now in the 10 minutes we have remaining is what? What is it that can make such a difference? What is this secret that Paul the Apostle talks about there in verse 12? And let me just segue into this next and last section by making a comment. For any of you that are church people, unless you're brand new to the church today, if you and I were having a cup of coffee at Starbucks, and I said, what is the secret to contentment? As a church-going Christian, you would say, Jesus. In other words, you would give me the answer that every kid in our Sunday school would give because the chances are if you say Jesus, it's the right answer for a church question, right? So, it, it, you know, what's Easter all about? Jesus. Who do we pray to? Jesus. You know, who's going to be there when we die? Jesus. You know, who's the one, that, the Lord of our life? Jesus. I mean, we teach our kids that from the time they were two to give the Jesus answer. And here's the problem with the Jesus answer. Now, bear with me. The Jesus answer is absolutely correct. So if you were having a cup of coffee and I said, Jerry, where is contentment found? And you said, Jamie, that's easy, Jesus. Though it's correct, as adults, we have to go further. And, and by further, I mean we have to ask ourselves, what is it specifically about your relationship with Jesus that's going to bring contentment? That's what I want us to deal with. 
Because I know lots of Christians who could easily give the Jesus answer, and quite frankly, they're probably still Christians, and you know them too, they just don't have a lot of contentment. So it's possible to have the right answer to say Jesus and then go out there Monday through Saturday and live your life and have absolutely no contentment, and that should perk us up. We should say, well, obviously I'm missing something in my Jesus answer that I'm not finding contentment in. So what are those things? Three things that Paul the Apostle shares for us here that you're going to want to dial into. And the first thing is, is that in this Jesus that you believe in, you need to have a radical faith. You need to have a radical faith. I love how Paul the Apostle says this in verse 13. Look at what he says. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We could do an entire series on just this one verse. I'm telling you, it is so jam-packed with livable truth. I can do all things through him, Jesus, who strengthens me. Just notice three things there. First, I can do all things, even find contentment. I can do all things, and contentment's included in that. Secondly, through him, obviously referring to Jesus Christ. Paul mentions him 35 times in four short chapters here. It's Jesus. But then the key, and this is the key, is who strengthens me. Who strengthens me? And you're asking the question, well, who else could strengthen you? Well, Oprah can strengthen you. Watch enough of her episodes. The New York Times bestseller list can strengthen you. Start reading them. Self-help can strengthen you. Start going to therapy. You can strengthen you. Remember the old Crystal Light commercial? I believe in Crystal Light because I believe in me. And that's the mantra of our world. There's so many things that our world screams to us every moment of every day on where to find strength. And I'm telling you, none of them say what Paul did in him who strengthens me. All of them point to some other source. And that's why I need you to see today is that some of us here today, if not many of us, have bought into a lie that says we're going to find contentment in other sources other than radical faith in Jesus Christ. That's the point. We live in a world that bombards us each moment of each day that says you're going to find strength in yourself. You're going to find strength in others around you. You're going to find strength in the education of this world. All good things, none of those are bad things. It's just that ultimately, as I've already said, those things are going to let you down. Those things aren't going to deliver on the kind of contentment that God has reserved for you. What Paul is saying here is that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Him who strengthens me. And so please see, folks, now it becomes an issue of source. That's what we're dealing with. Are we going to allow this world to be a continual source of earnestly sought but never gotten contentment? Or are we going to radically place our faith in Jesus Christ day by day, moment by moment, and see where that gets us? It's our choice. And I'm telling you, a battle wages every day for the choice that you're going to make of whether you're going to trust in Jesus Christ and place your faith in him or the things of this world. Because haven't we learned by now that you know, the things of this world are going to let us down? Even the good and fun things, you put too much weight on them, they're going to let you down. It, it, was, it was seven years ago 
this season that the Boston Red Sox won the World Series. Some of you baseball fans remember that day. I mean, it was quite an event. Even those of us who don't like the Boston Red Sox or don't care, we're excited that they won the World Series. And the reason is, is because they waited 86 years to win a world championship. The Indians are going to be in the running for that, but they've waited 86 years to win a world championship. And Bostonians met, went nuts. I, I mean, they had come so close so many times over the years only to be let down, and now they were world champions. And yet, interestingly, shortly after all the initial hype and excitement uh, started, the New York Times, the very next day, did a story called, and here's the title, With Nothing Left to Win, Fans of Red Sox Suddenly Feel a Loss. And this article observed that within just a few hours after the World Championship game, there was almost a citywide feeling of letdown, of discontentment. They could just feel it. And quoting Mike Andrews, who played second base for the Red Sox in 1967 when they almost won the series that year, and he'd wanted them to win all of his life, listen to what he says. Look up here on the screen. This article quoted him as saying, I'm having trouble dealing with it. You're just kind of caught saying, what's next? I, I don't want to say it's a letdown, but it's certainly something you let become part of your life, and now it's gone, and we need to come up with something new. Let that sink in a minute. The guy had been waiting all of his life for the Red Sox, this was his career, to win a World Series. They finally win, and self-confessedly, Thank the Lord for his honesty. Self-confessedly, he says within hours, we better find something new now because this didn't deliver like I thought it would. Hey, folks, have you ever experienced that? I think when we're honest with ourselves, we have. I fall prey to this all the time, guys. I'm telling you, for months I look forward to a new purchase, say a new computer equipment or a new car or something like that, and I'm all excited about it. I'm researching it. My kids see this obsession in my life and all this. Not a good testimony and all this other stuff. And then I get it, and within like two or three days, what's next? What's next? What did I just show my kids? It doesn't last. doesn't even last very long at all. I mean, how long are we going to be duped into thinking that this world, in any sense of the imagination, is going to give us contentment? It's not. It's going to come from another place, and that's Paul's point. He's saying that if you radically transfer your affection and your focus, a radical replacing of your faith onto Jesus Christ, you now are in the realm of being able to stand a chance of getting this thing called contentment. Contentment's an, an internal thing, as we've seen, and it takes a radical internal faith placed properly upon Christ for you to even be in the ballpark to be able to have it. Now, it doesn't stop there. Notice with me that Paul goes on to talk about a second thing, very similar, but I'll show you in a second, not the same thing, and that is he talks about a ruthless trust. He talks about a ruthless trust. Simply put, once you're in the realm of faith, once you've chosen to place your faith in Jesus Christ and not this world, the only thing that's going to keep you there is a ruthless, tenacious trust in him each moment of each day through all the ups and downs, through all the good and bad, you continue to trust him him. This is what Paul means in verse 19 when he says, and my God, to get the sense he's trusting him, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I love this verse. My God, my God will supply every need of mine and yours according to his riches in Christ. 
And what you and I need to learn in our lives is that nothing short of this kind of ruthless trust is going to bring contentment. You know, it said that when Alexander Solzhenitsyn was exiled into a Soviet labor camp, his response was to immediately bless it. Now, let that sink in a minute. You've been consigned to a Soviet labor camp, and the first thing you do is bless it. And when they asked him why years later, he said, and I quote, the meaning of earthly existence lies not, as we have grown used to thinking, in prospering, but in the development of the soul. It lies not in prospering. It lies in the development of the soul. Now let that sink in a minute. What he is suggesting there, what I believe, is that God's number one agenda for you, his number one purpose for your life, outside of you experiencing salvation in Jesus Christ, is that once you have done that, he now is more committed to the development of your soul than anything else, even your prospering. But when some people say to me on a financial level, why has God allowed this ruin to come into my life? Though there's lots of complexities as to why that might have happened, here's the number one thing we do know. He's obviously not committed to your financial success as you are. I mean, you're bound to say that. You have to say that. And the reality is, is that if God, who, who numbered every hair in your head, if God, whom a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground outside of his knowledge, if God, who is so caring, so grace-filled, so thoughtful, so sovereign, has allowed a recession like we just went through, obviously he's not as committed to the economy in America, to our financial success as we are. He has to have a higher goal for us. And he does. It's the development of your soul. It's that you become the man or the woman that he wants you to be in character, in relationality, in love, in faith. That's what he wants. So that when you breathe your dying breath and you die, you appear before him and he looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, you did it. You did it. You went through a recession and you stayed faithful. You didn't cop an attitude and blame me. You went through the death of your spouse and you still loved me. You went through heartbreak with your kids, and you still called me good. You trusted me with a ruthless trust every day of your life. And I gave you a taste of what heaven was going to be like, that sense of satisfaction and contentment. But now enter into your rest, because for all eternity, you've earned it. You've earned it. Not earning your salvation. You've earned the reward. That's what God says. He says for those of us who will be faithful and trust him, we get an immediate benefit this side of heaven. Not necessarily all the blessings we're looking for, but an immediate benefit this side of heaven, a peace and contentment that transcends all of that. And then someday a well done, good and faithful servant. And then lastly, so we got radical faith. We have a ruthless trust. And then I'm just following the text here. It's going to seem like I'm switching gears real fast here, but with this we're done. Paul talks about the fact that you need to learn regular giving and sharing. And it only makes sense. God knows that as long as we keep our fingers gripping the things that we have, and until we can somehow pry them off and get us to release them back to him, then contentment is simply going to be a far-off dream. And so God asks us, he commands us really, to engage in the regular act of giving and sharing the things that he has blessed us with. So in a very real sense, what, what the scriptures say is, is that if you want a really practical thing to do other than radical faith and ruthless trust when it comes to learning contentment, try giving something away. 
try sharing with those around you. And this is eminently biblical. It's verses 14 to 18, which you don't have time to read, but look at verse 17 as the Philippians have given some gifts to Paul. He says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit because of the gift. Isn't that powerful? And that's the same thing Jesus said. It's blessed, more blessed to give than receive. Paul's saying because you've given, there's going to be some fruit that increases to your credit. You're going to be blessed here. What's that blessing? It's contentment. And most of us have found this in life, that when we let go of our things, we learn to be content. And though it might be painful at first, that kind of faithfulness brings contentment. I experienced this just recently where I, I bought a gift for somebody. And I, I tell you, I'm not a very generous person at heart. Most type A's are not. Have you noticed that? So my wife, who's more of type B, has this spiritual gift, literally out of 22 different spiritual gifts, she has the spiritual gift of giving. I've joked for years that I match her well because I have the spiritual gift of receiving. And uh, that's kind of been the joke in our marriage. So when I give something away, it, it's almost like a borderline miracle, spirit-filled Pentecost type of thing. And so just recently, I bought something for a friend of mine as a special gift, a way just to bless him. And I got to tell you, I mean, I counted the dollars and all that. And after I did it, I had a deep sense of contentment. Have you ever experienced that? Just a deep sense of, whoa, it is good to let go of this stuff. It's good to say no to yourself. It's good to get that away from you. Purge your soul. Give to somebody else. And then look to God and engage that radical faith and that ruthless trust. Some of you walked in here this morning wondering, am I ever going to be content? Boy, I know that thought. <laughs> there have been times where I've been so low that I've wondered, am I ever going to have a level of satisfaction in which I say, as the great hymn writer does, it's okay with my soul, it's well with my soul. Here's the promise today, you can have that. You can have that. It's going to be a journey. You're going to have to make some key choices along the way, radical faith, ruthless trust, regular sharing and giving. But as you stay in the ring doing that, God's promise to you is that you will reach a level of contentment in which you say it as well with my soul. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your word comes along and as we started this morning, makes bold statements, not hyperbolic at all, just bold statements that either greatly encourage us in our lives or deeply challenge us in our lives. And God, I got to believe that there's been enough folks here today that need one or the other or both. And so, Lord, for those of us who needed just a continued encouragement to keep on keeping on when it comes to our faith and our trust and our selflessness, God, I pray that we'd be encouraged today to stay on the road that you got us on. Lord, for some of us, like a man in our first service who had yet to place his faith in Jesus Christ, who had yet to trust him for eternal life and did so afterward, I pray, God, that uh, you might make that step for some people here today, that they, where they sit right now, they might trust Jesus Christ and place their faith in him. And Lord, challenge the rest of us to that too. God, challenge us to deeply and ruthlessly trust you each moment of each day, no matter what we're going through. God, thank you that contentment can be ours. Thank you that it comes from a source we would have never thought of, a source outside of ourselves, Jesus Christ himself. And we pray these things in his holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you. We'll have a great day.